following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we're working through the Gospel of John this year, and we've taken a bit of a break while uh, Andrew Picard has, has brought that great series on Ephesians for the last three weeks. But uh, for several months earlier in the year, we have started working our way through the Gospel of John. So if you haven't been here, uh, we're picking up John in chapter 9 this morning. And uh, if you haven't been part of the series so far, it would be good and helpful for you to read up to this point in the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament, and uh, you've only got eight chapters to catch up on so far. Have a read of it. And as it turns out, and I didn't plan this, but this is a good chapter for us to re-enter the flow of the Gospel of John uh, because there's some, th- some themes here that tap into some, some of the big ideas we're looking at in John. So it'll give us an opportunity to recap on some stuff. What I'd like to do is read out all of John chapter 9. How are we going for time? It's a big chapter. Yeah, we'll have time. Uh, but it's, it's, just, it's really worth it. To read this, it's, a, it's all one story. It's a great story. At times, it's a funny story. And it's just really worth a read. So let's make this an act of worship. Settle in. It's going to be a long reading, but there's something really great about the public reading of Scripture. So let's read John 9. I'll read it. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a blind man from birth, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no work, no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied. And I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Amazing how he knew the words to amazing grace, isn't it? How did that happen? (laughs) Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? (laughs) This is great. Then they hurled their insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't even know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And here's the whole conclusion to the story. Jesus heard that they'd thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me that I might believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I've come into the world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Great passage, isn't it? Great story. It's just such a, such full of irony, full of some comedy there as well. Uh, the, the, the place where this, some of the story takes place, the, the, the location where this healing takes place, is uh, called the Pool of Siloam. It's a, an ancient pool just outside of Jerusalem, and our group went there. Those of us that went to Jerusalem, we went to this pool, uh, what archaeologists believe was this pool, and you can see half of it here. So the other side of it hasn't been excavated because the land belongs to some people that don't want it to be excavated. But you can see this is the pool stairs. It was quite a big pool, and there would have been water coming some of the way up these, up these stairs. So this was a big open-air spacious pool that a lot of people presumably could could get in it was used for washing it was used for for bathing for cleaning and uh, you can imagine i mean having been over there on a on a on a midsummer's day in the middle of the mediterranean summer it would have been nice to jump into the pool of salome and uh, have a bit of a have a bit of a bath in there it would have been a nice way to cool off and so this pool is the site where this man is healed but before we get to that we read that Jesus was walking along. We don't quite know where he was going, but just as he was going along, he encounters this man who has been blind from birth. And we, we don't have a record of any conversation that Jesus has with this guy. So there's no mention of the man asking Jesus to heal him. There's no mention of this man having any particular faith in Jesus. And this is an interesting passage uh, it's not the main point of the sermon, but this is an interesting passage on the whole issue of faith healing, if you like. 
Because you know how you hear sometimes from faith healers, if you just have enough faith, you're going to be healed, or you just need enough faith to be healed. And if you lack faith, you're not going to be healed. This guy was healed with no faith whatsoever. Okay, so if you think, well, I don't have enough faith, nothing's going to happen. This guy didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah, and Jesus heals him anyway. So that kind of puts to death the theory that if we just conjure up enough of this stuff called faith, then God's going to do what we want him to do. This guy had no faith, and Jesus heals him. In fact, you could argue that Jesus healed him so that he would start having some faith. And we'll see how that story unfolds. But for whatever reason, Jesus singles this guy out of the crowd among all of the other people that no doubt were, were blind, crippled, lame, and so on. But this, this day, this one guy, Jesus, identifies him and decides that he is going to heal this man. The way in which he heals him is pretty unconventional. It's one of the weirder healing stories in the Gospels. Jesus spits on the ground, spits on the dust, and then he stoops down and he rubs his saliva into the dust of the ground to make some mud. So he, he sort of makes these two mud pies and he gets this pasty mud and he sticks it on the guy's eyes. So just imagine being this man who can't see what's going on at this point. All he knows is there's some guy milling around in front of him. Next thing he just feels this gooey, stinky, pasty stuff on his eyes and he's probably wondering what kind of a, a weirdo this is. What, why couldn't he just have a normal faith healer, you know, who just said something and healed him? He had to be, have the guy who makes the mud pies. So Jesus puts this, this mud on the guy's eyes, and then he says, go and wash at this pool, the pool of Siloam. So the guy goes and, and wipes away, washes away this mud from his eyes, and lo and behold, for the first time in his life, he can see. He can see clearly. He can see perfectly. Now, what is going on with this, this weird healing of Jesus? I think there's a, a beautiful echo here of a, a much earlier story in the Bible, the creation story. Uh, those of you that have, that have read the first couple of chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, think about the story of how God creates the first human being, how God creates Adam. What does he do? He takes the dust of the ground, right? The dust of the ground, and he fashions a human being, and then he breathes into him the breath of life. From the mouth of God, the breath of life. In fact, the word for dust in Hebrew is the word adama, which sounds a lot like Adam, the man. God uses the adama, the dust, the ground, to make Adam. And here is Jesus, I think, giving us these beautiful echoes of the creation story, which says something about the ministry that Jesus is undertaking here, that Jesus again uses the dust of the ground and he doesn't breathe, but he uses saliva. It's a bit gross, but again, from the mouth of God and the dust of the ground comes creation. It's Genesis 1 and 2 all over again. Isn't it wonderful what Jesus is doing? I think that's, it's reasonable to infer those things. I think those symbols are there. And if so, it picks up on a theme that we've looked at right through the Gospel of John, which is this idea of new creation, that Jesus is coming now as the bearer of God's new creation in the world. And it's creation uh, even greater than the first one. This is Jesus renewing and putting back together things that have been broken and mending the wounds and, and healing the brokenness in people's lives and in creation and in the hearts of humanity. And Jesus is restoring, renewing, breathing new life into the world. And here it is up close in the life of one man, new creation from the Adama, from the dust. And the mouth of God comes healing, comes new creation, new life really for this guy. 
Now, that's the, that's the great part of the story. The healing itself is spectacular. The sad part of the story is what happens next. And for the whole rest of the chapter, what you see are these four groups of people coming in and out of this man's life, probably just in the course of a day or so, but they're all interacting with him. And all four groups of people are spiritually blind. So the whole passage is around the metaphor of seeing and blindness. This man has been blind and now he can see. But you've got all these other people who can physically see, but they're spiritually blind. They can't see what Jesus has done. They can't see who Jesus is. They're not perceiving the miracle of new creation that's gone on here. And what I want to do is look with you briefly at each of these groups of people that interact with this man. Look at the kind of spiritual blindness they're suffering from because I think they're a mirror of our own lives. God is still bringing about new creation today, isn't he? Jesus is still bringing about healing, still bringing about new life, new creation, renewal and healing. But we can miss it if we remain spiritually blind. We can fail to perceive what Jesus is doing in our lives in the lives of other people around us, in our world. And we need to ask God to heal us from our spiritual blindness. So these groups of people can be mirrors in our own life. And I'd ask you to, to think about and pray about as we go along whether you can see yourself in the, in the lives and the experience of any of these groups of people. And we'll try not to be distracted by the sparrow flying around overhead. So the first group of people that uh, this man encounters are Jesus' disciples. Even before Jesus heals this guy, he's walking along, he sees this man, and look at verse 2. His disciples ask him, here's the first thing they say, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? No compassion, no empathy, no, how can we help this guy? No, could we give some money to this guy? No, Jesus, is there any way that you could deal with this? It's just the first words out of their mouth, who sinned? Someone's got to be to blame. It's this guy or it's his parents, someone. For some reason, they've got this theological assumption. I don't, I don't know where they got it. I don't think it could have been the New Testament, uh, the Old Testament. There's plenty of examples of people suffering in the Old Testament who are righteous. But they've just got this assumption that if he's, str- if he's suffering, if he's physically disabled, it's got to be the result of sin. Therefore, someone's to blame. And that's the whole agenda they're running. These disciples are suffering from the blindness of judgmentalism. They're judging this man. They've got a prejudice because of certain assumptions they have, and it, it's, it's preventing them from seeing what Jesus could do in this man's life. For it's preventing them from seeing his humanness, isn't it? From seeing this guy as, 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 a, as a human being made in the image of God who's broken and desperately in need of healing. But they're coming in with who sinned. And this blindness of judgmentalism, it still plagues us, if we're honest, doesn't it? That our own judgmentalism towards other people can prevent us from seeing what Jesus is doing in our lives and the lives of people around us. I used to work with a guy in my previous job who was a real bully. He was, he was a pretty harsh man and he loved tearing strips off people, especially young grads like me. And he would rip into us regularly. It was so bad sometimes he would just rip into people in the conference room. Someone else had to go and close the door of the conference room so that the shouting would be contained. He was a harsh guy to work for. And I, I never really personally related to him any more than I had to. And I certainly never went anywhere near spiritual 
things, faith topics with him. I just assumed spirituality would be the furthest thing from his mind. A couple of years ago, I was reading the, the New Zealand Listener, and this guy had a column in the Listener. He's, a, he's in PR, so somehow he'd got a column in the Listener. And in this column, the whole thing was about his spiritual journey. Now, he was into weird stuff. I mean, this was, he went on some expedition to some place where he sat in a dark room with a whole lot of other people. It was quite wacky. But he was clearly on a spiritual journey. And this whole thing, he was pouring out his heart about the spiritual quest that he was on. And this was a side of him that I'd never seen while I was working with him. And I realized, you know, really what I'd done was, was judge that guy and write him off. And certainly write him off in a spiritual sense because he had seemed to me to be closed. And this is the problem. We can sum people up and assume, well, they're not interested or they are or this person's worth my time or this person isn't. Because I'd judged him, I'd failed to see an ounce of spirituality in his life. And even though he might be into some weird stuff, clearly he's got a hunger, had a hunger, he's passed away now, for spiritual things. And I didn't see it because I was too busy judging him. Are there people in your life like that? Are there people in your life that maybe you're missing what God is doing because you're judging them? Because if you're honest with yourself, you've got a critical spirit towards that person. And maybe for good reason, because they're annoying and they've done something to you and they're difficult or they've offended you in some way or they've made bad choices in their lives. But isn't it amazing the way that we will use those things as excuses to withdraw our compassion from them? And if we can find a reason, you know, who sinned? If I can find some sin in your life, then it abdicates my responsibility from showing compassion to you. And imagine if, we, if God had done that with us. Imagine if God had treated us that way. Some, some excuse, some reason not to deal mercifully with us. He wouldn't have needed much, would he? But he's hung in there with us. He's not judged us. He's shown us mercy. And he calls us to do the same. So maybe for you, you need to ask God to heal you from the blindness of judgmentalism. To ask God to lift those scales from your eyes so that you can see what he's doing in the lives of people that might be really difficult people the difficult person in your life. God's at work in them somehow. Ask Jesus to give you the eyes to see it, to perceive it, because he might, wanting, he might be wanting you to do something with him, to share with that person something, to move towards them with love. And Right now, the judgment's keeping you from doing that. Okay, the second group of people in this story are the man's neighbors. And this is interesting. You look down in verse 8. Look at how his neighbors respond to him. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that it was, but others, others of his neighbors said, No, it only looks like him. So here is the blindness of familiarity. This man's neighbors, at least some of them, were so used to seeing him in a blind state, they couldn't even recognize him now. They could not even look at this guy and see it was the same person. They're so familiar with who he used to be. They couldn't see what Jesus had done in his life now. They couldn't even recognize him. And again, this, it's so true for us. It's so easy for us to suffer from the blindness, the spiritual blindness of familiarity. We have all these rhythms and routines in our lives just to, to get through the day. We have daily regularities. We've got familiar places familiar rituals, we've got a lot of familiar people around us, our family, our workmates, we're just getting through the day and there's a sense of autopilot about the whole thing. But this familiarity that we experience, even familiarity here in church with the way the service is going to go and it's all very familiar sometimes, this can blind us 
from seeing what God might be wanting to do, to see the new creation that Jesus might be wanting to bring about. One of our uh, daily rhythms in, in our family is that I read the boys a bedtime story, a Bible story each night. Our two oldest boys, Josh and Lawson, we sit down on Josh's bed each night and I read them a story. Sometimes they listen Sometimes I read the story and they spend the time jumping all over each other, hiding under the bed, making lassoes with a dressing gown ribbon, you know, all kinds of things. And I'm, I'm just reading the story to myself. And <laughs> you just wonder, what am I doing? Why am I bothering with the story? I'm just reading it to myself. Um, but this last week, I was reading the story of Solomon, uh, Solomon asking for wisdom. And I was trying to explain Solomon was asking God to give him a wise heart. So that, and, and Josh asked, what, what's a wise heart? And I said, well, it's a, a heart that knows what the right thing to do is. Solomon asked God that he would give him a wise heart so he'd know the right thing to do. And okay, on we went, more hijinks and antics. And then Josh noticed a couple of minutes later that I had a, a scratch on my thumb because I'd banged myself with a hammer. And he came over and he gave me a little kiss on my thumb. And I said, Josh, that's a lovely thing to do. Why did you do that? And he said, well, it's because I want to have a wise heart. And I thought, I know, I knew I'd get that response. And I... I thought, that's great, you know, something's gone in there uh, in a small way. Uh, who knows what is happening a lot of the time, but some, somehow, even in the regularity of what we're doing, something's gone in, you know. Uh, I may not see it, I might not notice, I might not hear the outcomes of it like that, but, but I've got to trust that something's going in there. And there's a time too, isn't there, to, to try and mix it up a little bit so that we break up the monotony of the daily rhythms and routines to allow some space maybe for God to do something a little bit different. We can get so trapped in familiarity that you can close yourself off. One thing I've tried to do with the boys uh, recent times is teach Josh the Lord's Prayer. And it's amazing how young minds can absorb that. Hey, memory is an amazing thing in those early years and he, he's just ate it up. He, he's managed to get the Lord's Prayer memorized. And we've had to work on the phrasing and so on. He started off uh, saying... Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from eagles. So we had, to, we had to talk about that and how we don't need to be delivered from eagles. Um, it's evil. And we've simplified some language. But I've tried, I, I hope at the Spirit's prompting, to try and mix it up a little bit to create a little bit of freshness. Maybe that's a way of creating some space for God to do something there and, and uh, engage them a little bit more. And the, and the time will come when that will start to feel stale and repetitive and monotonous and we'll need to think about it again. But think about your own life. Are there ways where maybe familiarity is blinding you? Where just the familiar people, familiar places and spaces, familiar routines and rhythms of your life, maybe it's keeping you in a blinded state. It's keeping you a bit closed off to maybe what God is wanting to do. Not in extraordinary ways, not in amazing ways, but in ordinary ways in the lives of the people closest to you and around you during the day. Maybe God's doing some stuff you can't even see because it's just too familiar. And you're like the neighbors saying, oh, no, no, it's, it, that's, that's not happening. That's not the guy. That's not happening. Ask God to heal you from the blindness of familiarity. It's probably the blindness we don't even realize we have. But there's a lot of stuff in our lives that is too familiar and perhaps is keeping us numb to what God's doing. Ask him to heal you of that. Ask him to show you, is there any way, God, in which you are doing something around me? I can't even see it because stuff has just become a bit too ordinary, too familiar. Ask him to heal you of the blindness of familiarity. 
Okay, the third group of people in the story are the Pharisees. Now, they're really the big players in the story. And the big issue that the Pharisees have is that this man was healed on the Sabbath day. So Jesus healed this man on a Saturday. Saturday is a holy day for Jewish people, and the Pharisees were very big on the law, the law of Moses, and the Sabbath was a big part of the law. The problem with the Pharisees is that they'd taken a rule which is really good, the Sabbath rule that God gave to Israel, and they'd made it all about the rule rather than about God. They'd made it about the external ordinance rather than the internal heart of why you'd keep the Sabbath in the first place, to have time with God and with family. And they'd focused on the minutia. They'd come up with all these other rules to stop people working on the Sabbath. So they'd come up with rules about how many steps you could take on the Sabbath. They'd come up with rules about how heavy your pack could be on the Sabbath. They'd come up with rules about things you could and couldn't carry on the Sabbath, lest you might be tempted to do something that could vaguely be categorized as work. So they just ring-fenced the whole law like this. And their focus was on these very small things and very external things, completely missed the heart of it. And this is a huge exercise in missing the point because here are the Pharisees all focused and concerned about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. They've missed the point that there's an extraordinary miracle that's just occurred, that Jesus has just healed a guy who's been blind from birth. And they don't care. They can't see that because they're too hung up on their rules. They're too hung up on the, on the regulations of the law. They've missed the Messiah who's in their midst. And before we throw too many rocks at the Pharisees, let's look at our own hearts. Are there ways in which we have been hung up with rule-keeping, commandment-keeping, and law-keeping, and it started to blind us from what God is really doing? Rules can be good things. We need rules. To structure our lives, many commandments in the Bible that God calls us to obey, the problem comes when the rule becomes the big deal. The commandment becomes the big thing rather than being a means to an end to show us who God is and lead us into his presence. Are there ways in your life where the rule has become the, the dominating force? I have a, a little rule in my life, I suppose, uh, or, or a general rule that at times for me I think has become a bit of a spiritual blindness. Uh, around couples preparing for marriage, couples who are dating. I've generally had this rule that, and I've shared it with people who have asked, uh, that it's a good idea for couples who are dating to spend a couple of years dating before you get married, uh, to spend some time, to literally go through some seasons together, some seasons of life, to get to know each other, to get to know one another's family, to spend a bit of time, not to rush into it, kind of, you know, two years seems like a good time. And, and I, I stand by that rule. I think it's a good rule in general. But I can see times for me when that rule has become a blindness, when the rule has become too controlling and too dominant. I had a friend a few years ago who got married. Uh, he got married to a woman who had been widowed, had three young boys. And the space of time in which they began a relationship, got engaged and got married was pretty short, just a few months if I remember correctly. And I remember he rang me up to tell me that he was engaged. And I'm ashamed to say this, but my initial response was not celebration. It was to tell him my rule. You know, to tell him, well, you know, I've got this rule. <laughs> I've got this two-year rule. And I felt awkward about it. And I look back now and I think, I, I still think that's a good rule. But I can see the way that it prevented me from really seeing what God was doing in that relationship and the way in which that, I think, was a unique situation and their hearts were so for God 
and for one another. And I think at least initially it kept me from really celebrating with them and embracing uh, their relationship. And this can happen. It's a hard line to walk, isn't it? I'm not saying give up your rules and regulations. These, are, these can be good things. But it's not a question of how good or bad the rules or the, the practices are of your life. It's a question of are there things that have become defining and controlling for you that have just become too big a deal and perhaps you circle back to the judgment idea they've become a measuring rod for you now to judge other people. Uh, what's God doing in the lives of people who don't keep your rule? Maybe it's a, you've got a rule around drinking. You've got a rule around healthy eating, for example. What, whatever it is for you, that's, that's okay. But can you ask God to heal you of the blindness of rule-keeping? The blindness that stops you perceiving where Jesus might be wanting to bring some life and some new creation, maybe into your life, maybe into the lives of people who just don't keep your rule. Rather than forcing them to keep your rule, maybe look in their hearts and ask, what is Jesus doing here? How can I join him? in a way that's not about rule-keeping and law-keeping. We've got to give up that spirit of, of Pharisaism that keeps us just locked into laws and rules and blinds us from seeing Jesus and what he's really up to around us, the blindness of rule-keeping. And finally then, you have this group, uh, just two people, the man's parents. And you'd think of all the people in this story, they would be the ones who would be celebrating what's happened. They've had a son blind from birth, and now instantaneously he can see. What an amazing miracle. And they recognize this has happened, but they're fearful. They're afraid because the Pharisees have said, anyone that acknowledges Jesus is the Messiah is going to be put out of the synagogue. And that's a big deal for them. That would be the equivalent of you just being kicked out of this church. The elders come to you and say, you're not welcome here anymore. Don't show up next Sunday. You're out. Gone. Maybe even in a public way. It'll be shameful. It'll be an awful thing. Terrible experience. You can understand it. But they were, they were afraid of that. To lose their community, to lose their standing within the Jewish society. But it kept them, that fear kept them from really recognizing and really testifying to what Jesus had done for their son. It kept them from witnessing before others to the, the miracle that had happened here. They just kept their mouths closed and said, well, you better just ask our son. He's of age, you ask him. Not because they really wanted the Pharisees to ask him, but because they were too afraid to say it themselves. They're too scared. And fear is such a paralysis for us, isn't it? It's such a blindfold in our lives that keeps us back. It holds us back from what God is wanting to do, from what God's wanting to do in us, from opportunities maybe that he's wanting to give us to serve others, to bless others, to reach out to other people. We get held back because we're afraid, because we don't think we can do it, don't think we're competent enough, smart enough, able enough, whatever it is, or we're just afraid of how it's going to work out. We're trapped in anxiety, and it prevents us from really leaning into opportunity and, and mission and blessing where God brings it along our path. I remember there was a guy at the, the church I used to go to, a lovely guy, and he, he struggled with an intellectual disability. And every Sunday night, we'd go to the, the service, and after the service, without fail, he would come around all the young people who were there, and he would always ask us if we wanted to come back to his place for coffee. Some of you know who I'm talking about because you were there. And, and we, you know, every Sunday night, we would politely and lovingly decline and say, no thanks, we're, we're good, and we'd go off to Wendy's or whatever. And then one, one night... A few of us thought, why don't we go? Why don't we do this? Uh, and to be honest, there was a bit of fear around it. It wasn't a being terrified kind of fear, but it was a fear of social awkwardness, 
was a fear of not knowing what this was going to be and how it was going to work out and whether it was going to be strange and weird and all that. But we thought, let's just go and see. So we, we went as a group to this guy's place, and it was great. And man, you could see how meaningful it was for him. He pulled out his old LPs. He was playing us records. He took care with making us coffee. He just loved the fact that we had come into his home, and there we were. Um, I was talking to Anna about it this week, and we are saying, you know, we, I think we only did it once, and that, you know, we probably should have done it more than that. Maybe we were still kept in our, in our kind of fearful state. But it was a blessing, you know, to us as well as to him. And we had to push through a bit of awkwardness, a bit of fear, a bit of inconvenience to go there. But it was so worth it. And it was a way in which I think God was bringing about a bit of new creation, a bit of life for him and for us on that night. Fear can hold us back. You know, there's types of fear that are good. Fear can be a helpful, protective mechanism for you. But there's types of fear that are bad. There's ways in which fear just holds you back. And maybe there's ways now in which the blindness of fear is just taking hold in your life. There's, maybe you know there's something right now in front of me and I'm not stepping into it because I'm afraid. Something right now, God's call, maybe there's someone. You know, I could, I could be doing something here. God's calling me here. He's calling me to do this thing, have this conversation. I can't do it because I'm afraid. Scripture says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and self-control. And so if you're feeling afraid, it's not come from God. It's come from somewhere else. And you can ask God to break that fear in your life and to free you from the power of fear. It's not going to happen immediately. I don't think it's just going to mean the feelings of fear dissipate. Sometimes it means pushing through fear with a trembling hand. It's not easy. And you still feel a little bit of the anxiety. But on the other side, there's such blessing. On the other side, there's opportunities and possibilities that you are not even aware of right now because you're shackled by your own fear. Ask God today to heal you of the blindness of fear that's maybe keeping you from seeing what Jesus is doing and keeping you from sharing in what Jesus is doing. Ask him, to: is there any way, God, in which fear is a blindfold around my eyes and I'm missing out because I'm too afraid? So you have these four groups of people all of whom are struggling with spiritual blindness through this passage. But you know, the other amazing story here is the journey of this man. And at the same time, as these four groups are all expressing blindness, this man's on a journey to greater and greater sight. He's been physically healed, and then through the passage, he starts to just come into a spiritual awareness of who Jesus is. Starts off with no faith, then he starts talking about Jesus as a prophet to the Pharisees. Then he invites the Pharisees, would you like to be his disciples too? Starting to become a little evangelist. Isn't even a believer yet, in a sense, but he's evangelizing already. And then by the end of the passage, he's, he does get kicked out of the synagogue, but Jesus goes and finds them and, uh, and, and, and has this conversation with them where he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? The one speaking to you is he. And verse 38 is really the pinnacle of it. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And there he is, journey from, from physical sight to blindness, journey from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And when we come into that life-giving relationship with Jesus, the scales are lifted, and we see who Jesus is. And yet, even as Christians, we still struggle with spiritual blindness. Isn't that true? You can testify. I can, we, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean suddenly you have 
great spiritual sight. We still need to ask God to heal us from the ways in which our eyes become dim and we miss out on what Jesus is doing through fear, through judgment, through rule-keeping, through familiarity. We need to ask God to heal us of those things. Name the ways in which you have become spiritually blind. Ask God to reveal to you the ways in which you're spiritually blind. You don't even see it. You don't even recognize it. And ask him to give you spiritual sight, to give you spiritual depth perception so that you can really see who Jesus is and what he's doing in your heart, what he's stirring up within you, what he's wanting to do around you and your family at work, and what he's wanting to do even more broadly, opportunities that he may have for you that you hadn't even considered yet. So here's the way that I would like us to respond to this this morning uh, in a really practical and even physical way. We're going to take communion in a moment. And we celebrate, we remember Jesus' death on our behalf. And as we take communion this morning, I want to invite you to go to a communion station that represents a type of spiritual blindness. We've talked about four kinds of spiritual blindness this morning. There, of course, there are others. Uh, there may be something else that's on your mind, a way of being spiritually blind. That's okay. But I've, we've, we've just created these signs that represent, each one's got a word on it, that represents each of these ways that we've talked about being spiritually blind. Judgmentalism. Fear, rule-keeping, familiarity. And what I want to ask you to do is to go and take communion from the table, from the station, that represents a type of spiritual blindness that you struggle with. Now you say, well, mine's not on there. That's okay. Just pick your favorite color. It doesn't matter. There's no, there's no rule. We're not about rule-keeping, okay? Pick the one with the least people at it if you want to. That's fine. You know, we're relaxed about this. But for some of you, this is an exercise in responding to God and naming openly the way in which you've become spiritually blind, and really, as you're taking communion, asking God to heal you. Yes, that means being a little bit spiritually vulnerable, because someone might see you. We are a congregation, a church family, right? This is what it's about. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you really just, this makes you uncomfortable, just go and take communion. You can come back to your seat, or whatever you want to do to be inconspicuous. But if, if there is one of these ways... And, and you recognize, yeah, that's, that's an issue for me. There's an area of spiritual blindness here. Uh, I want to encourage you to go to that table. And here's what I want you to do, to take the wafer and the juice, but then just hover. Okay, so don't, don't come straight back to your seat, but just hover. We'll just, you, we have plenty of space in the gym. Just hover around the general area of that table with the wafer and the juice in your hand. And then when we've kind of gathered in these four groups around this room, I'm going to come up and I'm going to pray for us that God would heal us of the spiritual blindness represented in these ways okay uh, so i hope that that doesn't make you too uncomfortable at the same time a little bit of being uncomfortable is not always a bad thing right so i hope that makes sense can i pray and then we're going to enter into that time jesus i thank you for this miracle that you performed of healing this man born blind thank you lord even more for the way this passage teaches us about the spiritual blindness in our lives and god we acknowledge even now that there are some things that we know about, some ways that we know we're spiritually blind. But Jesus, equally, there, are, there is spiritual blindness in our life that we don't even know, and we can't even perceive it. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking during this time that you would come and bring conviction in the loving and gentle way that you do and that you would truly open our eyes. Open our eyes firstly, Lord, to see our own blindness, to see our spiritual state, to see the things that are keeping us back 
that are just blindfolding us. And then Jesus, as we come to you, as we name those things, as we confess them, as we lay them down, God, we're going to eat and drink of your grace. And as we take these elements, I pray that you would heal us, begin a work of healing us from the spiritual blindness in our lives. Not for our glory, not for anything in us, but so that we could see you, Jesus. That we could see you with new eyes. That we could see what you're doing, what you're wanting to do. God, we long to see. Even in praying this prayer, God, we're a bit fearful because we don't quite know what's going to come up. But Jesus, we want to push through that fear and ask that you would lift the blindfolds from our eyes and give us fresh eyesight into all that you are doing around us and show us some steps maybe that you're wanting us to take. Jesus, deal with us lovingly and graciously during this time as we take this step, we pray. Heal our spiritual blindness and give us our sight. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.